This is the American Alpine Club's Legacy Series, a tribute to the visionary climbers who made the sport what it is today, and a commitment to securing their legacies. In this episode of the series, we'll talk to Jim Whitaker of Mount Everest fame about his reflections and insights from a life in the mountains. I'm your host, Jim Aikman. Thanks for joining. You've been quoted saying, if you aren't living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. Yeah, I kind of picked that up. What did you mean by that? That was on a t-shirt. I thought, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think that you need to challenge yourself in life, and you you need to find out your limits, and you need to know what's out there, and so forth. And so that... Big Jim Whitaker is a climber's climber, forged in the iron crucible of American climbing's genesis, the 1940s and 50s. He was the first American to reach the highest summit on the planet, Mount Everest, or Chomolongma as it's known in the Tibetan language, and Sagar Martha in Nepali. A member of the famous Whitaker family, with his twin brother Lou Whitaker, also a prolific mountain climber and guide, Jim left an indelible mark on the sport. Beyond Everest, he's known for elevating the outdoor gear chain REI to international prominence and guiding Robert Kennedy in the lead up to his presidential bid and tragic assassination. He's an author, a husband, a father, and that rare breed of American hero that simply broke the mold. Jim now lives in Port Townsend, Washington on the Puget Sound with his wife, Diane Roberts. And at the time of this interview, his 90th birthday was right around the corner. But he's always called the Pacific Northwest home, ever since his birth in the 1920s at the outset of the Great Depression. Uh, my name's Jim Whitaker, and uh, I was born in 1929. Uh, raised here in the Northwest, uh, Seattle first, and, and uh, I have climbed most of my life. Uh, I still uh, climb up onto bar stools and into bed, uh, yeah, but not uh, as like I used to on the mountains. Although once in a while, actually, I went up to Mount, uh, up to Camp Muir, and then I skied this spring uh, a couple of times in uh, Canada. So I'm still as active as I can be, and I still think outside and in nature is uh, the answer, and uh, that we need to get people outside, and that. Uh, No child should be left inside. Thank you very much. Jim's contributions to climbing and the American Alpine Club are immense, bringing his hulkish strength to Washington's Mount Rainier, long before taking his talents to the highest mountain in the world. In fact, he and his brother Lou ran the sole guiding service on Rainier for many years, climbing the mountain hundreds of times. But it's Jim's life experience his long perspective on the cumulative history of climbing and its culture that drew the interest of this podcast series. After all, he's currently 94 years old, and he's seen more in this lifetime than most of us can hope for. So for the next 20 minutes or so, we'll sit back and let Jim expound on a nostalgia for the old ways, a respect for the new, and maybe just a little advice for the future generation as they pick up the torch from a true climbing visionary that put this country on the map in the world of high-altitude climbing. Well, Seattle, you know, the Northwest, my God, we're blessed with the mountains, the oceans, 
the rivers, the forests, uh, I mean, the, the environment is what uh, shaped me. Uh, although my family liked to get outdoors too, and that helped. Louie and I would wrestle with our brother Barney in the house, and mother, she'd say, go outside and play. And so that's, that's what started it. We got outside, and when you get outside in the Northwest here, you got all of this stuff to explore and, uh, and to uh, scare yourself with. And, uh, and to have fun, and so uh, it was the environment. It was a beautiful place to be raised. And so I, there were more, I'm sure, because we didn't have all of them. You didn't have the devices, for one thing, that take your attention for, you know, and we didn't even have television, you know. Then it was, Mom, go outside and play, you know. And so we'd go out and lay in the grass and, and look at the clouds, and we'd kick the can, and we'd throw a ball over the roof. We'd climb the trees and walked down Lincoln Park or the beach, you know. So, yeah, we had advantages that they don't have in those damn rooms and uh, huge cities, yeah. The Pacific Northwest was the perfect setting to turn Jim into an established mountain man. With the Cascade Mountain Range to the east of Seattle, North Cascades National Park just up the road, and of course, Mount Rainier towering on the Seattle skyline. And while the Cascades don't boast the highest altitude peaks in the country, they do offer a wide array of technical challenges. And the massive volcanic cone of Rainier, at nearly 14 and a half thousand feet, offered all the big mountain challenges of glacial travel, overnights at altitude, harsh weather, and endless wilderness to satiate Jim's appetite. But of course, back then climbing wasn't the household sport that it is today. Jim couldn't just head over to the local climbing gym to find climbing partners and learn the latest rope craft. And so we joined the Boy Scouts early on when, at 12. And so that meant we could uh, go camping and uh, learn uh, some of the skills of uh, lighting a fire and <clears throat> traveling in the wilderness, hiking, getting blisters on your feet, uh, but just basically getting outdoors. And, you know, when you're outside and in nature, it's always a surprise, it's a mystery. You don't know what's going to happen around the corner and, it, and it's, it's exciting and it's, uh, it's good. And as it turns out, it's good for the body too. It's the fresh air and you fill your lungs with that stuff and you get uh, the silence of, of the deep forests and, and uh, the winds that bring their freshness and the storms, their energy and cares will fall off like autumn leaves, right? A lifelong reader of John Muir and student of classical mountaineering, Jim has a poet's heart. But you wouldn't know that to look at him. Standing nearly six and a half feet tall and built like a Marvel superhero, especially back in his heyday, when he earned the nickname Big Jim. The first climb in this area for, for us, was it was uh, Mount Sai, which is kind of a hike. Uh, but the first real climb, well, and then we practiced climbing on Monitor Rock, <clears throat> which is now called Sherman Rock. Um, and it's uh, at Camp Long in a, a park, uh, city park uh, in West Seattle. Uh, it's just a rock, uh, artificial rock built uh, about 30 feet high and so forth. My first real, so I got the technique, rope technique and stuff, but the first real climb was the tooth up in, it's a, it's a fang of rock sticking out of the jawbone of the Cascade Mountains and at uh, 6,000 feet high. And it's got a couple thousand foot uh, 
made up probably a thousand foot wall on one side, uh, and that was my first climb, scared the hell out of me. Uh, we all swore off climbing, but uh, the three brothers went up, and uh, we all swore off climbing. We said, God, if you can get us down off this mountain, we'll never climb again. And uh, it was scary. But after a couple of weeks, I'm looking at Louis, yeah, man, that was kind of, yeah, what do you to And my brother Barney said, no more. He was the smart one of the three boys and, and quit. Uh, but we, uh, Louis and I continued to do it. We loved it, yeah. The feel of danger somewhat, uh, the thrill of doing it, the success of, of, of standing on, on top, a 360 degree view and the naturalness of it. You're, in the, you're walking up streams to go up there. You're, you're through the forest, you go up a rock slide, uh, you see marmots in the rock. You, uh, <clears throat> you get up there and you see clouds and you look around, there's not a house to be seen. There's not a, no civilized structure at all. And you're just expansive. It's just, oh uh, my God, it was just, it's just beautiful. Uh, and so, We've always loved nature, always been fascinated by the natural world. And you find out that it's a friend, nature's a friend. It's a wonderful, exciting, beautiful place. When the Korean War began in 1950, more than 70 years ago, Jim and his twin brother Lou were drafted into the army. But neither of them would ever set foot in Asia during the conflict. Instead, because of their experience in the mountains, they were conscripted to the Army's Mountain and Cold Weather Command at Camp Hale, Colorado, where they'd stay until the end of the war four years later. So that was a good deal, yeah. God, my buddies were getting shot over and shot at in Korea, and I was skiing and climbing, a hell of a deal. After the war, Jim and his brother Lou would etch their names into PNW climbing history as two of the strongest in the region, also notching climbs of Denali in Alaska, where they proved their mettle at high altitude. And the world started to notice, especially a man named Norman Durenfurth, a German climber who called Jim up with a very special invitation to put an American on the top of the world. Norman was assembling a team of the best American climbers to make it happen, and he needed the strongest climbers he could find on board. And so Jim would get his chance to visit the Asian continent after all during peacetime, but still to much fanfare, in 1963 with the first American expedition to Mount Everest. At that point, no American had stood atop one of the world's few 8,000-meter peaks. An American team had tried in 1962, the year before, and failed. And so the opportunity arrived for Jim, and he took it. He was 34 years old, in the prime of his life. There are a lot of people climb for a lot of different reasons, and we enjoyed the mountains, and it, we didn't do it for any special reason. It was just that it was a, a, a fun thing to do, and, and we enjoyed the natural world. So <clears throat> people climb for a lot of reasons, but I guess I climbed Everest uh, because it was the highest uh, point of Earth. The story of Jim Whitaker's climb on the South Coal of Everest has been well told dozens of times across mediums, perhaps best in Jim's book, A Life on the Edge, and Tom Hornbein's The West Ridge, upon which a film was based, which I actually co-directed with David Morton and Jake Norton, Everest icons in their own right, 
in 2012 called High and Hallowed, Everest 1963. The film chronicled Tom Hornbein and Willie Unsold's ascent of Everest's West Ridge and Whitaker's ascent of the South Call Route, along with his climbing partner and Sherpa Nawang Gambu, who played a vital role in the ascent, Jim's success, and thus America's great triumph. So, after all those years of telling stories in films and podcasts and speaking events, Jim didn't go down that road for our interview. He did, however, discuss some of the changes between climbing the mountain back in the 60s and the type of equipment we have now. Uh, yeah, a change in the gear, I would say the biggest change in the equipment that I wore on Everest compared to uh, now is the I had leather boots and leather boots got wet and man, I wore wet leather boots for three months and I still kept my toes. I was lucky, but but uh, the plastic boot now is just wonderful and I've worn those for the last, well, I guess 30 years. Uh, but the leather was what all that uh, they had at that time and uh, wet boots would mean cold feet and so I think that's a great improvement. Ropes now, a good stretch, a uh, lot, lot, lot better stretch for a, on a fall. Um, uh, techniques, uh, yeah, they got the friends and all this stuff. There's a lot of new stuff, uh, but still, you know, not a lot, not that's different. Uh, clothing down is still the best insulation, but the, yeah, axes are different. I do, you don't have a wooden handle ice axe anymore, <laughs> so <laughs> they won't break. Uh, but basic equipment, uh, you know, you still, it, it amounts to what you have, your own ability to use what you've got and uh, to make use of what there is. But the best equipment still is your own hands and feet and brain. That's, that's it, yeah. And maybe some luck, right? I mean, luck, have lots you of luck. pretty lucky? And, oh, lucky. And you've lost friends. Luck, yeah, you gotta be lucky, you know. And I, you know, in, in business or sports or anything else, people say, no, nah, no, nah, they say, oh, you make your luck. I'm bullshit. Yeah, you, you, you're lucky or not. I was. I didn't make my luck to be born in uh, the Northwest. Uh, for one thing, that was a lucky break. Uh, and I didn't. I was lucky. I wasn't killed in the ice fall uh, the day I went up because Jake was killed the next day. Tragically, during the initial days of fixing the deadly Kumbu ice fall at the base of the mountain the heinous gate to the upper mountain that claims more lives than any other section of the route. A huge avalanche of ice chunks the size of mansions and a matrix of other debris broke loose and killed Jake Breitenbach, one of the youngest and most promising climbers on the expedition. It was a tragic moment that gave great pause to the surviving members and forced the introspective decision to bail or continue up. In spite of the tragedy, Jim and the team continued their siege on Mount Everest, climbing through 50 mile an hour winds with 50 pound packs. Just shy of the summit, Jim ran out of oxygen, which could have killed a lesser man, suddenly trying to draw breaths in the death zone after breathing supplemental oxygen for the last 6,000 vertical feet. Nevertheless, on May 1st, 1963, he and Gambu reached the top of the world in unison via the South Call route it was a truly historic moment that's been compared to the moon landing, galvanizing an entire country around the success of Jim and the rest of the 63 expedition. Tom Hornbein, Willie Unsold, Norman Durenfurth, Barry Bishop, Lute Jerstadt, 
Dave Dingman, William Seary, Al Otten, Gil Roberts, the memory of Jake Breitenbach, and many, many more. After Jim's successful climb and the success of Tom Hornbein and Willie Unsold's West Ridge, the whole team returned to the United States victorious. Jim's home city of Seattle threw him a parade. President Kennedy welcomed him to the White House's Rose Garden for an award ceremony, and headlines bursted around the country. Back on Everest, a lot has changed in the last 60 years. Rather than the vacant base camp, unknown hazards, and general uncertainty of the greatest adventure imaginable, Everest has become a zoo, covered with wealthy jet-setters that want the summit photo on their mantle, and an enormous guiding industry that makes the Khumbu Valley more economically productive than every other region of Nepal combined. That's not to say there aren't still new climbs to be done and new adventures to be had at the top of the world. But its place in the spotlight often provides more questions than answers, especially as climate change transforms conditions in the Himalaya and around the world. Yeah, that's dangerous. That's, that doesn't work. Yeah, a lot of them are trying it, and if they've got the money, a lot of people have the money to hire a guide for 100 thou and so forth, and that's how they really get in trouble. They haven't learned what they can do or what nature has or so forth. So no, my advice is, yeah, start low and and gradually work your way up and <clears throat> until you feel like you can take care of yourself on the highest mountain of the world because the guide might die. And so you need to know what you can do and what your limitations are. Yeah. Work your way up, uh, get off onto the mountains and learn the lower ones and learn about ice and snow and avalanches and the whole ball of wax and see how you can handle it at 20,000. Go up to if you don't climb much now, go to Kilimanjaro. It's a trail, uh, but it's 20,000 feet. You'll learn how you feel at 20,000 feet, and that's a good start. Then do uh, McKinley at 20, where you can freeze your butt off and walk back with no toes if you, <laughs> if you make mistakes. And always remember, it's a round trip, right? You, you, you go up there, but you want to come back. It's a round trip, and uh, I tell people that if yeah, uh, the, the summit is optional, get down is mandatory. So that's the secret, is you're going to make a round trip. So learn as much as you can, and then you're okay. Hearing Jim speak, I can't help but feel a similar affection for the old days, a time when anything was possible and nothing was guaranteed. There is a difference in climbing today, Ross. You're right that uh, uh, in the old days, what there was the golden age of mountaineering, there were big expeditions. Hillary and Tenzing, uh, the Duke of Abruzzi on K2, uh, and uh, the Italians uh, on the first ascent of uh, K2. Uh, what they took in iron beds even, and had, uh, <laughs> I mean, it was really different. Uh, we had tables and chairs uh, at base camp on Everest. Uh, we had the 907 porters carrying that stuff. But you had to live up there, and there was no way you could live. Uh, you had to have the, you know, the basics. You needed food to live, and you needed tents to sleep on the mountain. You needed bottled oxygen. You needed stuff, and it had to be carried from... Kathmandu, you know, 185 miles. So I don't know what, what else you were going to do. You, 
Uh, nowadays, though, uh, you can fly in and you can hike with, uh, with only your stuff and be at Everest Base Camp. Uh, and uh, you can do that. Uh, now you can hike into K2 uh, with small groups if you want. Uh, so that it's different. And even now, uh, I have met Alex, the guy that's doing this um, incredible stuff, free climbing without rope. Uh, and but he's smart. He goes up first with rope, so he does all the handholds and so forth, and then remembers it, goes back down and climbs without protection. Uh, so that's it's a lot of risk, and I think he's been lucky. Uh, but that's how he's doing it. I mean, hell, we used to say, you know, it was good to climb without protection. You know, you know, someday somebody's going to climb Everest in the nude. Uh, but what the hell, uh, they're, they're meeting challenges. If there's an ocean, we cross it. If there's a record, we break it. If there's a wrong, we right it. If there's a disease, we cure it. If there's a mountain, we climb it. That's the nature of man, to meet these challenges. And so everybody's going to go one further. They're going to try and see what, what they can do. That's okay. I think that's good, uh, but try to be rational. And, and, uh, and enjoy the natural world. <laughs> yeah. These days, Jim's kids have picked up the Whitaker family business, pursuing climbing dreams of their own, especially he and Diane's son, Leaf, who's made his own name on Mount Everest. You bet. Uh, scared the hell out of me. Um, but I didn't push them into climbing, and that's important. I never told them they had to go out and climb, it just like skiing. If you're a good boy, maybe we'll go up skiing. And they oh yeah, okay. Uh, and so I didn't push them, but it's, they scared the hell out of me. I'm still scared. It's a dangerous sport and you can fall. Uh, there's a law against mountain climbing, it's called gravity. And it's dangerous. Um, but still, the, the joys and the, and the thrills and so forth are wonderful. But then now here's Leaf on Everest, right? And so I know he's on the mountain. He's going to climb it and so forth. And Diane and I are in a hotel in Bellevue, and her phone rings. Dad, <laughs> it's Leaf. I'm on the south summit of Everest. My God. I'm in a phone call from the summit of Everest. God. And so I said, oh, man, Leaf, good going. What's the weather? I said, it's OK. And he said, we're heading down. I said, OK, for God's sake, be careful. And watch out for the ice fall, because, you know, that's what kills people. Okay, so I'm waiting for a phone call and a day goes by and there's no phone call from him that he's back down to Camp 2 or anything. Then another day goes down, which was when he should have gone down to base camp and through the ice wall. No phone call. The third day goes by and I'm thinking, oh my God, something's happened and they're afraid to tell me. And I'm watching the news and then finally I call. Somebody said, yeah, he's down and he's in base camp. And I, so that was, yeah, but yeah, no, we're, you worry, you, you do worry, yeah. Jim Whitaker made the first American ascent of Mount Everest. He guided Robert Kennedy up the first ascent of Mount Kennedy in the St. Elias Mountains, Canada's highest unclimbed peak at the time. He made REI what it is today. He was an early board member at the American Alpine Club under President Nick Clinch. In 1975, he led an expedition to Pakistan's K2 that fell short of the summit at 22,000 feet, returning again in 1978 when he reached 26,000 feet. 
though he never summited. During the Cold War, Jim put together a joint American-Chinese-Soviet expedition back to Mount Everest, a dramatic gesture at a time of great tension between the three world superpowers. This time, they climbed from the Tibetan side. Jim was now 60 years old. And on May 6, 1990, climbers from all three countries reached the summit. Jim's leadership in his era of mountain climbing was unparalleled. Ask anyone he climbed with and they'll tell you as much. He changed the game, but the game changed him too, for the better. And he recalls these experiences in the mountains as the most meaningful and formative of his life. He's been lucky indeed. Mostly it's what you treasure about the mountains is the wilderness and the challenges you and you learn about yourself. And uh, there's a lot of things I could say, but it's, um, I've been lucky climbing mountains and uh, I certainly appreciate that. And I've been lucky to have the family I've had, the wife I've got, uh, yeah, I'm a lucky guy. Yeah, lucky to still be vertical, what the hell, 87? And still milling around, still skiing like a, kind of shaky, I'm like a tarantula in a 90 mile an hour wind. My arms and legs are nah, all over the place. But at least, you know, you're up there. Listeners can learn even more about the Whitaker family through Jim's son Leaf's book, My Old Man and the Mountain, among a variety of other resources. And Jim's still kicking, speaking from time to time at events and enjoying life in Port Townsend. Thanks to everyone for tuning in for another episode of the Legacy Podcast series. We'll see you next time when we'll be talking to New York's Elaine Matthews, one of the pioneering climbers of the world-famous Shawangunks, or the Gunks as it's known to climbers and a key member of the Vulgarians. Until next time. <laughs>